Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Love it, love it, love it. Hey, welcome to the Exchange. You got here just in time. The rain is is uh, beating down outside, so we're going to go for two or three hours till the rain stops today. And uh, thank you, David. <laughs> He's been wanting to do that his whole life. His whole life. That's a drummer's dream. Listen, if you haven't had an opportunity to do so, go ahead and check in on uh, Facebook, and you can just share this page, whatever, let people know what's going on. All of our check-ins go to uh, do good in the world. Every month, we have a whole new check-in system. Uh, This month, I don't remember what it was exactly. Um, We might have it, might not. But uh, we've we've done bricks and water and wells and education and food and shoes, uh, clothes, all kinds of things. And so uh, every check-in goes to help do missions around the world. And so you doing that, we appreciate it so much. Uh, Also, I want to remind you before we get going, next Sunday we're having church as usual at the same time, the same bat place. But our kids are taking over. Uh, after worship, and they'll be doing some Christmas stuff for us. And so we want you to be a part of that, be here, cheer them on, and clap, and cry. And and uh, I remember when, when Peyton was little, every time she got in front of a crowd, she cried. Uh, when she was in dance, and we took her to do her first dance, she went out on stage, and she did the whole kind of And then she saw us, and she would turn and run off the stage and cry. And the dance instructor would come back out on stage and do the dance with Peyton in her arms. And then when Peyton went in to cheer, uh, we have videos of Shelly standing behind Peyton doing the cheer with her to get her to do it. She would cry every time. So if that's your child next week, we're going to have so much fun. And I'm going to have so much fun watching you on stage with your children. And uh, I will video it and share it at their wedding. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. I had a story I was fixing to share, but I was trying to decide, filter if it was appropriate or not. But I'm just going to skip it. So, uh, <laughs> so today, listen, I want to share a message that's always on my heart and uh with everything that's happened this year and the season that we've been in, uh, it's been a really difficult year for the church world, okay? Churches in general, you know, the rules of can you meet, can you not meet, how can you meet, and when to meet, and all that. And then, the, you know, a lot of churches do not have online capabilities. Uh, we have a roofing company, and, and uh Yesterday or the day before, I don't remember, a guy called me and he said, hey, you know, I was given your number. We need a roof. Part of our, our roof on our church is messed up, and we've tried to fix it and done this. We need, where do you get shingles? How can we do it? So I just started talking to this guy, and he started asking about if we were meeting live, and he said, man, we're not able to meet live yet because uh, our pastor is really concerned about it. Um, he said, but we don't have online capabilities, so it's really, you know, getting to our people. And uh, I thought, man, you know, it is. There's so many churches that 
don't have that opportunity, don't have that technology or the ability to do that. Um, and so I was looking up this week just statistics, church statistics throughout the pandemic, uh, throughout 2020. And I read some things that were pretty interesting. They say that the average church attendance across America that are now having in-person services is down 80% across the board. That's a big number, 80%. Then that same article says that, uh, says the church in America will take years to get back to pre-COVID status, if ever at all. Because this pandemic has put the church gathering for Christians as a bottom priority. Whereas before the pandemic, church going for Christians was high priority. And so it's changed things throughout the pandemic. Then it goes on, it says, things like work, exercise, sports, parties, hobbies have bounced back whether they were supposed to or not, while the church attendance is still on a decline. So you think about that, and as a pastor, you read statistics like that, and you go, wow, man, that's kind of tough. And, and you think back of the year, and you think, you know, it was a, a tough year uh, as, as meeting in person uh, for, for our church. But I was reminded of how it's not the gathering that's the important, I mean, okay, let me say this correctly. Gathering is important, but the mission of our church is not numbers. It's not how many we can get together, but the mission of the church is how many we can affect with the message of Christ outside the church on a daily basis, right? Come on, nod your head, I know you believe that with me. So it's not about how many people we can get inside the building, but it's that message of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus. It's what Jesus Christ did on the cross that we need to get outside the church. That's really the important message. And sometimes we can get distracted by the things that have happened throughout the year. And un unfortunately, there's not a lot of churches, well, there are some churches, but not a lot of churches who their sole mission is to get the message of Christ outside. Amen. There's a thing called a mixture that, that people tend to go back to and hover around, and it's uh, something that I kind of grew up in. It's a mixture of covenants, and, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did that, and it's enough. But this and this and this says that it's not quite enough. you got to do extra, and, and there's a mixture. And those things are so dangerous and hurtful and, and, and painful to uh, an unbeliever. And so what we're going to talk about is kind of that, what our mission is and what our, our hope is. And listen, I understand where we're going. I understand uh, what, what God has put in our heart and our mission as a church and our passion and our heartbeat as a church. And when I think about where that is and where we're going with that, it's exciting. It's really exciting. And I'm loving every step on this journey, even though, if I'm honest, there were times this year that I thought, oh, man. The church is in trouble. You know, there is a time, if I'm transparent, and if you'll allow me, if you'll indulge me for a moment, 
you know, we buy this property in January. We take ownership. We're not even renters anymore. We own this property, and we have to start making payments. And as soon as we have to start making payments, they tell us you can't meet as a church. That was scary. Do you understand? that There are seasons that you start to question. And, and so even me, there were times where you start to get your eyes off the mission because you even wonder what the mission is, how the mission's changed. But listen, our mission has not changed. And our heart and our heartbeat has not changed. So if you have your Bibles, open your Bible with me to the book of John, John chapter 4. I love the, the book of John. I love how John writes uh, this book, and he gives us signs of, of who Jesus is, the Messiah. He says, listen, I've written these things down so that you may know that Jesus Christ is the living Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And so John writes this beautiful book, and in this book, John chapter 4, he's telling us a story that happened with Jesus and the disciples, and John says that, that Jesus said this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Okay, this is John chapter 4, starting verse 35. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are right for harvest. Now, as church people, we were kind of trained and taught when somebody reads this verse, to get excited, right? Like, open your eyes and look around. The fields are ripe for harvest. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's standing at a well talking to his disciples, and he says, open your eyes and look around. The fields are ripe from harvest. And we as a church, we're supposed to get excited about that. Woo! Open your eyes. If the pastor gets up here, if I was really good at my job, he'd get up here and get a little shout going and maybe do the splits and do a little dance and say, open your eyes, church, exchange, church. The fields are ripe for harvest. Come on, church. And we would start to, woo, yes, yes, right. Preach it, pastor. Right? But when you just read this verse like normal, it's not that exciting, <laughs> to be honest, Right? Because we don't have the context. We don't have, we can't see it. It says, open your eyes, the fields are ripe for harvest. It's harvest time. So the question to ask you, today, in your life and in my life and as a church, is it about the meal or is it about the mission? Jesus says, my food, my food. I know what my, my food is. And so thinking back on this year, for me, too often, I got my eyes back focused on a meal, and it was about this event or that event or this thing or that thing, and it just became about the, the one thing to the next to the next to the next, and, and it was easy to get distracted from the mission because you're so focused on where the next meal is going to come from. One of the toughest things about preaching today, and, and especially in this generation, is being able to take the Word of God and properly put it into context, clearly apply it to our lives within the context of what it's actually saying. Because one of the most dangerous things that people do all the time, uh, and I hear this all the time, and I have to just, I don't even hardly look at Facebook anymore, uh, 
especially the good Bible thumpers on Facebook, because they get on and they'll just say a verse. And they'll just say a verse and they write a post about a verse. And I'm like, it's not even what that verse is saying. It's not even close. You're so blowing that verse out. It's not even in context. It's not even in reference to what you're saying. And it's not even to you. And, and so, but I just don't, I try not to even read those because I just, you know, you want to get on and I want to be a keyboard warrior, but I don't. And, uh, and is, does that bother anybody else? Just me? That's okay. That's okay. I wouldn't admit it either. Um, but it's just, it's just to put it into context and stop taking scriptures out. Uh, and this can be a challenge for us because context is important. Context is the circumstances that form the setting for an event, a statement, or an idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. That's what context is. So take, for example, the verse that we just read. Jesus is, is quoting a proverb, and, and it's a Middle Eastern saying, and he's saying it to Middle Eastern people at the time, not to you and not to me. And so when I read it and Jesus is saying, don't you have a saying, it's four months to harvest? My response is no, right? You don't, I don't have that saying. And so if you're asking me a question, the answer is simply no. Um, but he says, don't you have a saying? Is it it's still four months to harvest, right? I mean, do you have that saying? Daryl, do, do you say that often when you're at the house? You say that, hey, Leslie, it's four months till harvest. Uh, and, and it's hard to even put that saying into context. And you can, you can try, but it's difficult. Make sure my phone's off here. <laughs> but it, it's hard to take that into context. You know, when, when I'm driving in traffic and someone swerves and cuts me off, I don't give them the pinky and say, it's four months till harvest. Okay. I tried to put, I tried to slide that in there. It doesn't work. Kevin and I go play golf all the time, and I've never seen him hit a 20 or 30 foot putt and then fist pump. Bah, it's four months till harvest. That doesn't work. So that context, uh, I've seen Shelly walk in and toys everywhere and stuff all over the house, and my dog has used the restroom, not in the restroom spot. You know what I'm saying? And I've not seen Shelly walk in and go, it's four months to harvest, you know? So I've tried, I've tried to fit this in. So Jesus is asking me the question, don't you have a saying it's four months to harvest? And, and the answer is no, I don't have that saying. So how can I possibly use this verse? I was watching David play the drums this morning, and I was watching his lips as he was kind of mouthing some of the words to the song, and I was watching for him to say, it's four months to harvest. And he didn't. Not once. And so I'm just trying to figure out how we apply this and how we really apply this. It's, it's tough because we don't have this saying. This was an agricultural community. It was farm country. The people that Jesus was talking to, they got it. They actually had that saying. That was a common saying that they had. They understood it. But it's tough to understand here in Houston, and especially in the city life of Houston, uh, maybe on the outskirts and in some of the more rural areas. But where I grew up, it, this saying probably would have been more understandable because I grew up in West Texas. And, and in West Texas, it was a big farming community, okay? 
But it's tough if you're not in an agricultural community. We live in the Facebook and Twitter and TikTok world, okay, where everything's online and it's about videos and how-tos and all those kinds of things. Context is important. Context is what gives you compassion for people. It's easy to say what they ought to do, but you aren't them. And if you were them, you probably wouldn't be doing as good as they're doing in that situation. Does that make sense? And so you got to understand it's hard to have compassion for someone when you don't understand that the, the context that they're in. Shelly will say sometimes, babe, I'm going to open tomorrow and I'm leaving the house at 5 a.m. You have to get the kids up, get them ready. And, and she usually will get all their lunches and all that stuff ready. And I really don't have to do much. But if she wants to be mean, she didn't do anything. She can just leave the house. And then I have to get the kids up. And for some reason, they want to eat in the mornings. And for some reason, they expect me to fix food for them to take to school so that they can eat later during the day. And then I have to make sure they kind of match, which I don't do very often because I'm a free will dad. You can wear what you want to wear. I don't care. And and I have to get them to school on time and get their bags and stuff. And when Shelly does that, she gives me context of what she deals with on a daily basis. And when I live in that context, then I'm able to have compassion on what she deals with because I was in the context of, of that every day. So, and that's also the reason why texting can be dangerous. Somebody say amen. Okay, there's conversations I don't have over text. Shelly told me yesterday, she said, you need text on them. I said, <laughs> not a conversation I'm going to have over text. This is a face-to-face. And here's an example why. Hey, I've been trying to reach you all day. Are we still going to the mall? Jeez. Sorry, B. Missed your text. I'd assume we'd meet at the mall. Whatever. I don't care. Sorry, B. Missed your text. I assume we'd meet at the mall. Whatever, I don't care. Whatever, I don't care? What's her problem? Do you even wanna hang out? Do you even wanna hang out? Well, that's considerate. Like I said, whatever. Like I said, whatever? What the heck, Jesus, you are priceless. Aw, you're the one. That's priceless? This, oh, she needs to, mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Do you wanna go right now? Oh, I guess I could do that. Okay. Let's go? She said, okay, let's go. All right, you know what? Do you really wanna do this now? Oh, Bianca, you're nuts. You're not putting me out. Heck yeah, let's do it! I'll pay for what you want. Pay for what I want? Oh, you're getting on my nerves! Let's go! Let's 
<laughs> Isn't that the truth? Right? That came, that's a parody taken from a, a video, but uh, have y'all ever seen Key and Peele? Uh, if you're, if you're, you know, a real religious person, I'm sorry, because you just totally judged me. But uh, they did it, and, and their version's really funny, but they probably say a few extra words that I didn't want to show to this morning. Um, but I've, I've sent the video to Shelly a few times because we have that problem occasionally. Anybody else? Anybody else that I have something I'm going to say, and she responds back, and I'm like, wait a minute. She's not reading that the way I intended her. I intended her to read it with a smile on her face. So a lot of times we read things through the filter of what we feel or what we're going through, and we take things so out of context, so blown up. I, I don't enjoy texting, especially if it's anything important. I, I like texting because it's convenient. But if it's important, uh, it could be exactly like we just saw. Uh, so blown out of proportion, out of context. Um, one of our managers that worked for us at, at the daycare, she said in her previous job, the training, they tell you when you answer the phone, you have to answer with a smile. And I thought, that is so awesome. You're answering the phone. They obviously can't see you, but it's the tone and the filter and the things that come through. It's the context of how you present yourself. And, and it's easy to mess that up. Or maybe you have preconceived notions about people, maybe about white people or about black people or preconceived notions about people in the medical field or about police officers or foreigners. And then all of a sudden you have someone coming to your family who is a different race or who is a police officer. And all of a sudden you have to take what was a concept that all people were created equal and you have to work that into the context. See, the concepts are sexy. They look good. They sound good. The concept uh, of the exchange being a growing church, that sounds good. It looks good. But with that comes problems. It comes issues. You, you begin to have parking problems, and then you, have, you don't have enough workers in the kids' church. You don't have room in the kids' ministry. And so all of a sudden, this concept kind of becomes an issue. So it's concept to context. Concept to context. See, I could say, thank you for the blood of Jesus that has been poured over my life. Sounds great, right? But try to explain that to a four-year-old. Okay? Try to explain to a four-year-old why it's good that Jesus' blood is poured on them. And that we wash them with Jesus' blood. Not so cool, is it? Right? Isn't that kind of weird? I remember being a little kid and bringing people. Uh, I had a friend of mine who, we, he ended up going to our church. His whole family ended up coming to our church. But I remember bringing him in to my church when we were little. And I, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, you know. And, man, you better watch out because they is going to get down. And all of a sudden, we turned to page, you know, whatever it was, 633 in the hymnal. And they start singing uh, are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the right? Are you washed with an R? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? And my friend's going. 
right? Isn't that weird? And then on occasion, we had communion. <laughs> and so not only are we going to wash in the blood, but we're going to drink it. Explain that to a four-year-old. That's weird, right? It's, it's context. It's, kind of, it's hard to explain that because it just doesn't make sense. It does, it's hard for a four-year-old to understand that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to become an atonement for our sins, that it was the blood that he shed that gave us access, that gave us purpose, that gave us life, that gave us life everlasting. It was that access that washed away our sins. First John 1, 7 says, But when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from what? All. Everybody say all. From all. All sins. See, a four-year-old might not understand the power of the blood that was shed for us. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time. Everybody say all time. All time those who are being sanctified. So when somebody says thank you for the blood of Jesus that covers me, you can actually praise him because you have context. You understand what that means. You understand what it means to have the blood of Jesus that has taken away every sin of the world, that has defeated uh, all your enemies, banished all of your sins, that, that makes you the head and not the tail. Amen? The, you have context. So the blood of Jesus makes sense to you. Context. So when we shout, when we say, I'm more than a conqueror, right? That'll get the church going. Man, I've preached messages like that. I'm more than a Nike. I'm more than a Nikeo, which means conqueror. More than a conqueror. The church starts shouting. But then you start talking about the battles we have to go through. And the church stops shouting because we want to be a conqueror, but we don't want any battles. How can you be a conqueror without conflict? It's about context. Context is important. I was told one day from someone who says, I just don't want to sacrifice was if it's slapping any of my free time. And my response was, you wouldn't know what sacrifice was if it slapped you in the face. Because that's a fun saying, right? Has anybody ever said that to anybody? Like, oh, man, I've been working so hard. And you say, oh, you wouldn't know work if it slapped you in the face. Right? Fun saying. Because it's context. You wouldn't know if it slapped you in the face. Like, I don't get working out. TJ always says, man, I, I'm going to go work out today. Oh, I can't wait to get back in the gym and work out. Oh, I can't wait until we have to lose these masks and we can start working out like normal. And <laughs> just laugh. That's funny. He actually wants to work out. He, like, he looks forward to working out. He schedules his day. He got a job that makes him work people out while he works out. I don't get it. It's context. And it doesn't make any sense to me why somebody would love working out. But then I remember seeing a picture of TJ several years ago, because I've known TJ for, man, almost 20 years, 18 years, something like that. And I saw a picture of TJ right there. I've actually seen a lot of these pictures. At one point, TJ was 260-some-odd pounds. For those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, I'm not trying to draw attention to him. He's in the sound booth right there. 
<laughs> and he's the guy who's always like, oh, man, I want to go work out. I want to go work out. I want to go work out. And I'm like, yeah, you're crazy. But then this is his other picture. A year later. A year later. See, for him, there's context. He, he's seen what it has done for his life. Working out changed his life. He got down at one point to like 185 or 190 pounds. It's almost 100-pound weight loss just from working out. So, see, I don't like working out, and I don't know why people get excited about that. But I, I don't have that context to live in because context, again, is the circumstances that form the settings for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. That's why he loves working out, the context. When you hear the harvest out of that, that passage that we read, it's so much different if you didn't grow up around farming. Like if you didn't grow up around, you know, not just the grass farms out in Crosby or Dayton, but you didn't grow up around cotton farming or grain or sorghum or, or, or corn. It's a lot different if you didn't grow up around that. I remember several years ago taking a guy that was raised in Houston his whole life back up towards Amarillo, where I'm from, to go pheasant hunting. And we were in the car, we were in the truck, we were just going back through West Texas where I grew up, and we're going through, uh, like, the Lubbock area. And he goes, I mean, he just yells out on the side of the road. He's like, what is that? He's like, they're everywhere. And I was like, what's what? And I'm looking through the field, and like, looking for coyotes or something. He's like, that. And I was like, what? And he's like, that. He's like, stop, stop truck. So he stopped the truck, and he gets out, and he goes up to this cotton module. It's just cotton. It's a big rectangular square of cotton. Rectangular square. That didn't really make sense. It's a rectangle, rectangular bundle of cotton. And he goes up and he's touching it. He's like, what is that? What is this? And it's kind of right on the side of the road through the bar ditch. And I was like, that's cotton. And he's like, oh. he'd never seen it before. Never seen it in his life. And I was like, you've never seen cotton? He's like, No. Like, really? He's like, what? why is it like this? And I was like, that's a, called a module. They put them in a truck. You know, they, they strip the cotton with a cotton stripper and put it in bells. And then they take all those bells and put it in a module builder. And then in the module builder, they, they build these modules. And that's where I grew up. That's kind of the area that I grew up in. So, so let me give you some context here. You know, a, a bell of cotton can make uh, 1,217 men's T-shirts. Or it can make 313 $1,600 bills. Texas is the largest producer of cotton uh, in the United States with an average of 5.5 billion uh, million bales of cotton. That's a lot of bales of cotton. So they take this cotton, and I'm just going to pretend some of you don't know how it works. So they take the cotton, and they, they drive these, they call them cotton strippers, uh, and they, it, it takes all the cotton off, and then it piles up in this, it sprays in this basket, and then it rolls the bells or it squares the bells. They take all that, put them in a module builder, or sometimes they just spray the cotton directly into the module builder, and it builds these giant modules. And then they have a, a, like a bobtail truck that 
the bed of the truck is exactly the size of the module, and it's got these chains and teeth on it. And I, I drove a truck one whole season for a long time, and it was so much fun. Um, and they back up to those bales and lower it down, and it just kind of pulls that, that module inside the truck, and they tra- take it, and they drop it off at the gin. And there was a picture up there that TJ put up of a gin that is just full of cotton modules. And, and those modules just thousands, just as far as I can see around that gin. And that gin during harvest season runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It runs nonstop. And if you've ever lived in a town with a gin, it is just nonstop all the time. And, and the farmers, they have this window. So during the year, they, they till the field, and they prepare the soil, and then they go and they plant the seed, they pour the seed, and then throughout the year, they're constantly uh, irrigating, and then they, they're spraying chemicals to help the cotton grow. They're spraying chemicals that'll help kill weeds. They also will sometimes pick weeds in certain fields, and they grow that. But then when it comes to harvest season, there's a window in which they have to harvest the cotton. Uh, and we're, we're at, right now at the end of that window. There are some still harvesting, I'm sure. But you want to harvest before the, fir- before the freeze, before the big freeze. Once it freezes, it really can ruin your, your harvest. And so there's this window. Once that window comes, the, the farmers are harvesting their cotton around the clock. And we would play sports with, with friends or, or people that, that their parents were cotton farmers, and these farmers would leave their overalls. They'd sit there and watch the basketball game, and they would be in their coveralls or overalls. They'd sit there and watch their kid play basketball, and then they'd leave the game and go right back, get on the tractor, and continue harvesting. They harvest around the clock. The, the, the spouses a lot of times would take the food to the tractor, you know, take lunch to the tractor, or take dinner to the tractor, because during that season, it's just nonstop over and over and over. And, and during the harvest, you're finally seeing the manifestation uh, or, or the reward uh, of your labor, of everything that you've done for the entire year um, working. Because once the harvest is done, they start tilling and they start getting ready and they start planting. And there's this whole year that goes back to harvest season when they start to see the reward. But it's the fruit of their labor. Harvest isn't Little Caesar's hot and ready. It's work. It's hard. You can't reap at rest. Somebody might need to write that down. You can't reap at rest. So for just a second, let's get back to our text. So I want to put into context what John is writing. John is writing uh, about Jesus. Jesus goes to Samaria. Actually says, uh, it, it says he had to go to Samaria. He could have went around, which is what most people did, especially the Jews. They would go around Samaria. Samaria was not a place they wanted to go to. They hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated them. And so, again, it's about context. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to us because when we hear the word Samaritan, we don't immediately get enraged with hate and anger towards the Samaritans, right? You're not mad at them, right? You're not angry with them. They didn't do anything to you. But, but the Jews would get furious. They would get furious with them. And, and when we hear in 2020 the word Samaritan, we typically hear the word good with it, right? 
the Good Samaritan. And, and to the Jews, those two words couldn't possibly go together. A few years ago, we're probably going to need to bring this back soon, but we preached a whole series on uh, get off your donkey, and it was a story that centered around uh, the Good Samaritan, which redefined, where Jesus redefined what it is to be a neighbor. And so Jesus goes to Samaria, and, and the Jews back then, uh, the Good Samaritan, it didn't work, it, it didn't make sense, so we can't tell the story and even say Good Samaritan, it was just Samaritan. Uh, it would be like today saying, man, I've got this really awesome babysitter. Uh, he's about 60 years old, and he's registered sex vendor, but he's really nice. Right? That doesn't make sense. I mean, how many of you would call me for my babysitter's reference or whatever, right? It just doesn't make sense. That doesn't go together. And to Jews, that's kind of how it went when you would, if you would say good Samaritan. It just didn't work together. It doesn't fit. There was this huge cultural conflict. Jews, Jesus walks right into it. He goes through Samaria. Now, the disciples, they're hungry. They need food. They haven't eaten all day. And so they leave Jesus, and they go uh, to eat. Well, when they leave Jesus, he's at the well. So there's this well. The disciples leave to go eat. Jesus is standing at a well, and all of a sudden, a woman walks up. There's some conflict here. They start having a conversation. The, the conversation actually turns into a little bit of a, an argument. But in this story, we find out a few things about this lady. We find out that she had five husbands previously. We find out that she's living with a sixth man, not at the same time, but on her sixth way to a husband. Um, and now listen, if you've had a couple relationships, no problem. But if you've had five uh, divorces, and, and you're on your sixth, I would say there's probably an issue there. Just guessing. Uh, so she's been married five times. She's got the sixth one on deck. Uh, and so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase for you in John chapter 4. Jesus sees this woman at the well who's coming for water, obviously, at the well. But Jesus wants to give her the living water. So they start to have this conversation. It turns into an argument. And they start arguing over the dumbest things. They're arguing over where to worship. She says, well, y'all worship here. We worship there. Uh, and, and then you're a man and I'm a woman. You're a Jew. You're a rabbi, a teacher. And I'm a Samaritan. You're not even supposed to be having a conversation with me. It's against your law. And so they're having this this little conversation that kind of gets a little bit heated, this debate, and, and, and this arguing is going, and she's arguing without understanding the context. She's arguing with the solution <coughs> to all of her problems, and she has no idea. She has no clue who Jesus really is. She's confused because she doesn't see the context yet. She came for some water, but Jesus is wanting to give her living water in which he says you'll never thirst again. So remember, the disciples, they're off chowing down, and uh, somewhere they get done, and they come back towards the well to meet Jesus. They see in a distance Jesus talking to this woman. They get closer and closer and closer. They notice it's a woman. They notice it's a Samaritan woman. It's a woman, Samaritan woman with a reputation. And so they walk up to Jesus, and they didn't say a word. They just stood there. Awkward. 
awkward. I don't like awkward silence. It's one of my pet peeves. I don't like awkward silence. It's weird. It just drives me crazy. So they're standing there in this moment of awkward silence. And at the end of this conversation with Jesus, she says in verse 25, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. In other words, he's going to explain who's right, who's wrong. Do we worship there or there? Which one is it really? You know, can we actually be talking? Can we do this? Can can we eat this? Can we eat that? He's going to explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She she gets excited about this. There's a look in his eyes. There's something that we really can't understand as we weren't there in the moment. But just trying to read into what, what John is writing, there's something that happens. There's an excitement that happens. She's still a little bit confused in this conversation. And she drops her jar. She leaves her jar. And she runs back into town. She runs back to Samaria. And she runs into the town. She runs right back to the town that the disciples hate. And the disciples are all standing there watching her. You can only imagine what's going through their mind. She's got to go tell somebody. She goes, and and she goes into town, and she starts telling everybody, hey, I met a man. And they're probably like, yeah, I bet you did. You're good at that. You're really good at that. You're really good at that. And and she was basically the, the Elizabeth Taylor of the first generation, okay? She had been through a few and so she's, she's going, she says, I met a man, and, and he's different, he's different. And they're like, yeah, you said that about the first, second, third one, too. She's like, no, he's different. He told me everything that I have ever done, which he didn't, but he just called her out on husband one, two, three, four, and five. And then he said, and the one you're living with now is not even your husband. So he calls her out on six. So because he called her out on that, she immediately assumed that, that Jesus knew everything that she's ever done. There was something that was happening in their conversation. She sensed something powerful. So she goes back in Samaria and she's telling him, he knew everything I'd ever done. And so she gets the attention of all the men in that town, which she's probably good at again and she asks could this possibly be the messiah she tells them the whole conversation so they gather together and they start to discuss this and she's telling them exactly what happened what they talked about so the men gather together even more than that gather together and there's this large crowd of people and they start to head out of town to the well to go see this man that she's talking about because she's got all of their curiosities kind of stirring, right? And while the men are headed to the well, we're going to look at verse 31. Meanwhile, so this is all happening in town in Samaria. Meanwhile, his disciples, they're standing at the well with him and they start urging him, Jesus, come on, you got to eat something. Teacher, rabbi, you got to eat something. And and Jesus hadn't eaten all day, and they were pushing him because they knew he had to be hungry. And here's how Jesus replied. He says, listen, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. But the disciples didn't get it. When Jesus says that, they didn't get it. Jesus was saying, I have something that sustains me that you can't see, you can't even imagine. I've got something on the inside of me, what Jesus was basically saying. He comes out and says later on, I am the bread of life. 
Come on, somebody. I am the bread. You don't even know. You're trying to get me to eat food. You're saying that I need to go eat, but I'm telling you, what there's something on the inside of me that sustains me that you can't even imagine. The disciples still don't get it because of what they say next in verse 33. Then the disciples said to each other, could somebody have brought him some food? Is that what he's talking about? Did you bring him food? I didn't bring him food. You didn't give him any food? No, I didn't give him food. So what's he talking about? <laughs> he's got food that sustains him that we don't know anything about. They're confused by what he says because they're mill-minded. It's about tasks and it's about the next thing and the next thing. And a lot of us, we, we're we're mill-minded, and it's easy to become mill-minded because it's about the next job, or it's about the next relationship, or it's about just the next church service. But Jesus is not about a meal. He's about the mission. He was focused on the mission. That's why he could go That's why he couldn't go around Samaria. That's why he had to go through Samaria. That's why he couldn't go out to eat with the guys because there was a mission. He knew he was on a mission. He just couldn't go and spend time with the boys eating. He was on a mission. That's why he stayed at the well. He was about a mission, not a meal. I'm on a mission. I just don't have time for a meal. There's something bigger. It's harvest time. It's work time. And I think as, a, as the church, as believers, we have to kind of switch into that mindset that it's always about something bigger than just that moment. That it's always about something greater than just that moment or just that job or just that relationship or just that service. The reason that we planted this church in the first place a few years ago was, was so that we could be about the mission. And the mission was to make sure that people understood who Jesus was, a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for them and the freedom that comes when you have a knowledge and understanding of the finished work of Christ. It's work time. It's time to reap the blessings. Harvest is here. They were about a mission he was about the harvest. They were about comfort. He was about the mission. They were about convenience. And sit, listen, sometimes our need for convenience has put us out of commission. I've heard people say this at every church I've been since I, since I was 18 years old and, and got into ministry. Uh, I hear people say this. Well, I, I feel called to this church. I know God called me here, but... And then... Everything in the world, but this other church is closer. I feel called here, but uh, they have this for my kids. I feel called here, but um, it's too cold. It's too hot. It's too loud. It's too quiet. The preacher's too funny. He's not funny enough. He's too long-winded. He doesn't preach at least an hour. If he doesn't preach at least an hour, then I don't believe it's of God, you know? I really, I've heard everything under the sun. And, and what, what happens is we just become so mill-minded and so picky. We want a Burger King kind of church so we can have it our way, right? We don't want a Walmart church uh, because, or, 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 or we don't want a Walmart church because then we have to self-check out. So we don't want that. So we get so picky. I don't want to have to work. I just want to go to a church that's already done the harvest time. And I just want to come in and just be the, receive the blessings and everything that comes along with all the work that's already been done. I don't want to do the work. Or they say this, I did. 
But it's harvest time, and the harvest season is hard work. Well, but I'd just rather go to church, and I don't want to do anything. I just want to listen and leave and no expectations. I just want to get my meal and go. But listen, any church that is doing the will of God is always going to be in a harvest season. Okay? That's our job as believers is to live in a season of harvest where we're constantly, constantly sowing and reaping, constantly sowing and reaping, constantly giving, 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 leading and guiding and lifting up every day. So you just have to decide if you're going to work or watch. I'm going to ask the, the band to go ahead and come up. It has to drive us. So go back to the text. I'll close it out here with this. He says, so you have this saying that it, isn't it four months till harvest? What's the context in this? Jesus says, don't worry about giving me a meal because you're about a meal, but I'm about the mission. Now, I want you to catch this. This is the point of where I'm going this morning. It's not about a meal. You are about a meal. You were all about a meal, but I'm about the mission. You eat and I'll reap. Be about a mission. Listen, as a church, when you go to work, you have to be about a mission. When you go to school, you have to be about the mission. When you, when you go to your family meetings and, and whatever, you have to be about a mission. Jesus says in verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to do what? To finish his work. And then he says this, so don't miss this. He says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus says, look up. The disciples, they, they just get back from eating. Now, you have to put all this in the context. You have to get in the story and be in this moment. They're standing at the well. Jesus is having this conversation. The disciples have just walked up with Jesus. The woman has left Jesus and went back into the city. <clears throat> Jesus says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months till harvest. Don't you have this saying that y'all say and share all the time? Now, remember just a few verses ago, the lady, she heads to town. She goes and tells all the men and all the people what's going on. There's a crowd gathered, and they're coming out to meet this man. Meanwhile, back at the well, Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples. And he says, guys, don't you have a saying that it's, it's four months till harvest? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we do. And he says, listen, look up. I'm telling you the harvest is right here. So they look up, and what do they see? Well, they're like, yeah, we're with you, Jesus, but you need to go eat something. Listen, I'm not about a meal. I have food that you don't even understand that sustains me. But look up. It's, the harvest is here. And they look up, and they say, yeah, the harvest is here, but the Samaritans are also coming. We need to get out of here because they're going to mess everything up. And Jesus is saying, look up. I'm telling you, the harvest is ripe. It's ready right now. And they say, we're with you, Jesus, but the Samaritans are coming. And, and we don't like the Samaritans. They're not like us. They're half-breeds. Jesus says, 
look up. The harvest is ready. And they're like, hey, we're with you, Jesus. You're getting us all pumped up. But let's go before the Samaritans get here. That woman went and told them something. And Jesus is saying, the harvest is here. If you look up and it's being led by a thirsty woman. The disciples weren't getting it. Jesus is having this conversation at the well. And he's telling them, don't you say it's four months and then harvest? And he's saying, I'm telling you, look up now. And when they look up, what they see as their problem is actually the harvest. What they saw as the issue, because when, and it's so, again, it's so hard to get into context, the hate that the Jewish people had for the Samaritans and vice versa. It was so real and so raw and so deep. And Jesus is saying, isn't it four months till harvest? Look up, because I'm telling you, the fields are ripe for harvest right now. As they look up, what did they see? They didn't see fields that were ready for harvest. They saw a whole whole group of people that was coming towards Jesus because they heard the voice of one lady who had met the Messiah and she was dying of thirst. She was so thirsty. And she meets Jesus. She meets the Messiah. And she looks in his eyes and she believes what he's saying. She goes back and she tells everybody. All these people gather and they start coming to meet Jesus. And Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm not talking about actual fields, people. I'm talking about the problem that you think is your problem is not actually your problem. The problem is actually your harvest. So maybe if we as a church would start to look at our problems as not problems, but actually as harvest, we would begin to reap the things that we're sitting in the middle of. See, sometimes we're in the middle of a job and we can't stand the job. We hate the job and we think the job is the problem. And if we could get out of the job, we could finally reap the harvest that we're supposed to have. And Jesus is going, listen, open your eyes. It's right in front of you. The problem is your harvest. But you're so about a meal. It's about this. It's about that. It's about that. Stop. Stop with the whole meal thing and be about the mission. The mission is so much greater than that. Jesus is telling the disciples. And man, when I think about this picture, I just, you know, there's a a lot of moments in the Bible that I wish I could have been at. This is at the top of my list. If I could have been there with the disciples when Jesus says, look up. The harvest, the fields are ripe right now. And in the back, you just see dust coming up from a whole group of people that are walking towards Jesus. Listening to the voice of a woman that was just dying of thirst. And she met the living water who told her, you'll never, ever, ever thirst again. And now there's people that heard her voice and that can persuade and can want to be like that lady at the well that can persuade and convince people to hear my voice that I've met the living water that I know what I know what I know what I know that I've got what I've got what I've got what I've got and that I've met the living water and when you meet him you'll never thirst again that that he is the solution 
to all my problems. That the fields are ripe now. The disciples keep looking up and they don't know what Jesus is talking about because what they see is just a problem coming. Let me say this. If you can't recognize it, you can't reap it. So if you're sitting in the middle of a job that you don't really like or you're confused about or you're sitting in the middle of a financial situation that you just is just messing with you or or a physical ailment that is just beating you down and you're just stuck and you're stuck and you're stuck and you can't see it you can't reap it it's not always how quick you can get out of it but how quick you can turn that problem into your harvest into exactly what God has called you to do he could have went around Samaria He could have went around Samaria, but the guys were hungry. They were going to the buffet. Jesus said, go, I've got a mission. And it's not just about a woman, but it's about all the people that will be influenced by her voice. I got a mission. I got food that you don't understand. See our job as believers this morning, and it's my challenge to you as we leave this place, is to find purpose in the problem. Okay? So with that being said, I'm going to everybody just close your eyes. All around this room, just close your eyes for a second. And I just want to get you to think about something. I want you to picture something in your mind. Those that are watching online, (laughs) just think about this for a second. Close your eyes. But I want you to find the problem in in your life right now. Some of you don't even want to think about it. You're, comfortable, you're uncomfortable with me even saying this, but there's no mind readers in here. This is just between you and God. And it may be just a, a dark season. It may be a difficult season. It may be your job. It may be your finances. It may be a, a sickness or something that you're going through. And I want you to think about the, the number one problem, maybe two or three problems. That problem, if you'll address it and identify it correctly and stop looking at it as a problem and start seeing it as the harvest, you can begin to reap and benefit things that you never dreamed possible. The only problem that you face today is seeing your problem for that just a problem just an issue because if you see it like that if you address it like that then you're never going to walk out of that it's going to always be there it's going to be there tomorrow it's going to be there in the next day so i challenge you this week to apply this that that and the solution in that problem and look deeper and i want you to find <coughs> the harvest Find the harvest that's going to begin to change everything about the situation. Don't just try to get out of the problem, but find the harvest in the middle of the problem. We've got to stop looking for the next quick solution or quick meal to get out. But we've got to start looking to change the 
problem from the inside out and begin to reap the harvest that we're sitting in. God didn't necessarily put you in the middle of that problem for a reason. You may have put yourself in the middle of that problem. But God's saying, listen, if you'll pay attention and you'll trust me, we can turn this problem into the harvest. Father, I ask right now, Jesus, that you'll open our eyes and that we'll look around and, and, and see things differently. God, that we'll see maybe certain people in our lives that have always been a, a problem or a, a thorn in our flesh. God, that we'll view them differently. God, that we'll see people groups that that maybe we've had issue with that we don't think like or they don't think like us or believe like us or, or, or speak like us, God. Lord, I pray that we don't view them ever as a, a problem or an issue, God, but we view them as the harvest of, of people who just need to be introduced to you, that they can be introduced into the light so that they can see that they are sons and daughters of of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, I pray that we can dig deep into the heart of the things that have hurt us and held us down and oppressed us. And we can find the solutions in that harvest season. That you'll change us from the inside out, Father. God, I pray for those that are listening right now. God, that whatever it is that we're going through, that you'll step in and you'll remind them. It's just this season. It's harvest season and, and that things are going to begin to change and turn. And, and by your spirit and by your hand, Father, I ask right now that you just begin to work the supernatural that you begin to stir things in the supernatural, that the situations will begin to change in the supernatural. We thank you for these things, God. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen.